Welcome to another episode of CBT Talks. Today, I have the honor and privilege of sitting here with Stan May, Dr. Stan May. He has 45 years of ministry experience. He's a pastor. He's been a missionary. He is a professor. He is a published author. He's a missiologist. He's a disciple maker, and he, he reads through the New Testament every year in Greek. Doc, that is the coolest thing that I know about you. He speaks two languages fluently. He dabbles in others. He's continually training missionaries, continually training pastors, students, church members. He's the busiest man ever, and yet we have him here in studio. We're going to interview you, Doc, today. We're going to have a lot of fun, and uh, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. After that introduction, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. Doc, I've been looking forward to this interview, and just so that folks know, uh, Doc and I have known each other uh, for a very long time. If you watched the last episode, you know that Doc is basically responsible, uh, by God's grace, for literally changing my life. Do you remember the, the day, I, I'd be surprised if you do, but do you remember the day in, that, in the hallway uh, outside your classroom that you looked me in the eye and said, Joel, can you tell me the big story of the Bible right now? <laughs> I, I remember a lot of those days with a lot of students challenging them, but not many caught the vision like you did. Wow. Well, you know, when I, I'll never forget that moment because it was it was a moment of 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 humility for me, um, and uh, you know, it was the first time I'd ever met someone, another man in in Christ, uh, that that was willing to look me in the eye and challenge me in that way. Uh, I think it's a, a fleshing out, really, of of what it means to speak the truth to one another in love. And I guess I just want to say it out loud to get this thing started. Uh, Doc, thank you um, for taking the time to invest in my life. So this interview is not, uh, you know, we're not strangers. We know each other very well. I'm proud to call Doc my friend and my mentor and my father in the faith. But Doc, we want to, we want to start out just really unpacking the the idea and continuing this idea with this interview we say all the time in cbt that we are drawn to story that god designed us for story and in fact god reveals himself in story and and it's by knowing god's story that we understand our own story his story is our story. We find our identity in Him. Amen. So to, to begin, we, we just want to know your story. Well, I'll be succinct. I'll tell you a fun story. Um, Ava and, and I met, I, I, I came to Christ, just to give you a, a little bit of background. I grew up in a Baptist church, did all the Baptist things, made all the Baptist professions, basically kept our church in the top 25 in baptisms annually. Uh, by being baptized. But then at the age of 19, I realized I didn't know Christ. And at the age of 19, I came to know Christ. I dropped out of college. I was working construction and really loved it, loved what I was doing, felt exactly at home there, had a future. But there was a guy at our church that witnessed to me, and he had been changed. 
the gospel had gotten hold of him, and I knew whatever he had, I didn't have. And I watched him, and he prayed for me. He said, I'm going to pray that you'll be miserable till you get right with God. And I would literally wake up thinking, I need to be miserable because this guy's actually praying for me to be miserable. <laughs> and so I, I, was, I spent mornings miserable thinking about it. But when I came to Christ, when he and I prayed together that Sunday night after church services, and I went to church because my dad, I was a pagan, but I went to church because my dad had a rule that if you live at home, you go to church, and it was cheap rent. And so I went to church, and... Um, and as I, I, I listened to him, I, I realized I, want, I wanted Christ, and I knew Christ wanted me, and that was probably more profound, and it didn't catch me till later that that was true. But as I came to Jesus, uh, my life changed. I mean, in, a, in a, such an incredible way, the next morning I went to work, and the things that I had done before without even thinking I didn't need to do anymore. I had a new peace. I didn't talk the way I used to talk. Habits began to fall off, some quickly, some more slowly, but my life began to change, and God began to say, I'm, I'm calling you into the ministry. And that was a shocking thing because I was super content to spend the rest of my life working construction, and I'd already dropped out of college and really didn't see any point in college. But I went back, went to Union, loved, fell in love with the Greek New Testament, um, began to read Greek, uh, had had professors who— uh, and. Uh, I respect these men, but they they were very different on the theological spectrum, and God used them to challenge me and really shape me to be more conservative biblically, to, to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. It was a perfect timing in my life because it was a challenge to me to say, okay, what what kind of man am I going to be? What, what do I really believe? And even then, early in my spiritual formation, I saw how God had been doing one gracious thing. He had been teaching me to memorize. So I memorized every day. I put new scripture verses up on the wall of our dorm, on the door going out of the dorm room. And I literally had a uh, roommate a couple of years later stop me and say, I just want to thank you. I said, why? And he said, because I memorized more scriptures by accident as your roommate than I have my whole <laughs> life on purpose. And so, um, but we, we memorized scripture. And uh, one of my professors questioned a lot of the Old Testament, made fun of it. And he, I went to him one day and I said, do you believe in the literal historicity of Jonah? And he said, well, no, no, I don't stand. But he said, I don't, it's because I don't believe all those people repented. I don't have any problem with the fish story. Wow. But, and I walked out of his office and a verse of scripture came to mind. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah's. Amen. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and this is going to sound simplistic for some people, but it really is this. I can take the word of a man who has a PhD or I can take the word of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. And what I realized was Hmm. is that a lot of people have PhDs and that doesn't mean anything. People had scholarly degrees in Jesus' day and they rejected him too. And so I came to a clear understanding and grip of scripture, but one of those men was a gracious man, and he poured into me in, in Greek New Testament, and I fell in love with it and read it and started a lifelong journey into the Greek, and just, it's been, a, it's been fun. Um, but I'm grateful for that. The fun parts of my story are that after I finished college and before I entered seminary, which was about a three-month period, but not in summer, it was January through March, because Mid-America in those days had a March intake. 
I went to, uh, I was invited by a man of God, Manly Beasley, to take him to a college in North Arkansas, and there I met a girl who was really a godly woman. And I saw godliness in her, and I thought, I, that's the kind of girl I want to marry. And so I did. <laughs> now, it was a real circuitous route. You know, people ask us about it, and I say, well, we never dated. She was there. Uh, she, her best, her roommate thought she liked me and, and convinced Iva that I liked her. And, and the story went strange directions. And then we would run into each other. I, I went with a youth group to Titusville, Florida, and there she was. And if we had a date, we went out that night and talked for a little bit. And that was the only night we ever really had a date. And then she went to Israel. And while she was in Israel, as I was praying, I just couldn't get her off my heart. We began to write. And after a breakup in communication, then we got connected again together. And the Lord uh, made clear to me that I should marry her. So I flew over with an archaeological team of my professors and departed from the team for a bit, went up. And and this is a really cool thing. But most people probably don't get to do this. But to ask her to marry me, we were in the shadow of Mount Hermon. Wow. And, and a little stream flowing in Kibbutz Daphna. And by that stream, I asked her to marry me. And wow. so she was she was serving the Lord overseas. She spoke Hebrew at the time. She had swum the Sea of Galilee. Wow. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she was, I mean, she's a beast, but you already know that. Oh, right. um, and and she, uh, she was just one of these people. She was so passionate about the Lord. It was such a fun thing. And our marriage um, really... It, was a bit of a challenge because both of us we never dated so we got to know each other as married people wow instead of as you know dating people and we walked through the normal struggles that married people walk through but at, from that point on I watched her want to grow in the things of God amen as people as she went through hurts as she walked through the fires of the challenges of being a mom and then going back to school and preparing again for the mission field when we went to Zimbabwe uh, learning the language we both learned the language I stayed with it longer because her work eventually she may not ever talk about this but she decided she was discipling women in the city and she had a group of women and they had seven different languages and the only one they shared in common was English so that's the one they worked in but I was out in the rural areas and the, all the people spoke you know, in that area, they spoke my language, the language I was learning. And so I was able to stay with it, stick with it, learn it more deeply and use it regularly. There were days when I didn't speak any English at all uh, because I was out in the bush with people that didn't use English. So I was the only person out there that didn't speak, that spoke English. Uh, so I, I learned that, you know, I learned the language and it was fun. Our time in Zimbabwe was a great time. We learned about chronological Bible storying there. We came back when I finished my degree. We God opened up a door for us to uh, begin to teach at the seminary. Dr. Gray invited me onto the faculty. Uh, I began to teach students, and we began to train students to prepare for overseas service. And we wrote our students and said, what, what are we lacking? And they said, well, we need chronological Bible story. So we invited the IMBN to come teach us chronological Bible story. And Iva took the class, as we all did, and we prepared to teach it. And she asked the instructors, who's doing this with secondary oral learners, uh, uh, people that can read but don't, who's doing that with those people here in the States? They said, nobody, why don't you start? So she did. 
And she was discipling three groups of seminary wives at the time. And she's probably told the story herself, but she said, we're gonna try something different for six weeks. And if you don't like it, we'll go back. And the rest is history. <laughs> Within two years, she had written the first iteration of um, W3, Women Worldview in the Word. In 2004, she had written pretty much the complete volume. Of course, it's probably gone through a thousand editings, but she, she wrote that complete volume. And then God began to open up doors. Other women got impacted by it. This, and the rest of the story is history. For the first few years, I was more on the sidelines as the cheerleader. And as I tell people, I, I kept two jobs to sort of support my wife's discipleship habit. You know, some women shop, my wife discipled people. And so uh, I did two jobs to do that. And I really thought, oh, okay, that's nice. I love the storying part, but the idea of reading through the chronological Bible was, okay, that's good, but I'm trained. And then I started reading through the chronological Bible and and though I had read through the Bible since I'd been saved, and, um, and really by the third year I'd been saved, I was reading through the Bible annually. I think I did the first two years, but I don't want to say that. So, because um, I fell in love with the Word. Just to, as a quick aside, when the first few months I, I was, came to Christ, I didn't know you only read a little. So every night I'd go <laughs> home after work and I'd read like three or four of Paul's letters because I just couldn't get enough of it. Amen. And, and and so uh, I, I read through the chronological one-year Bible and puzzle pieces fell into place. It is no surprise that CBT uses the analogy of a puzzle because things that had been so unclear, confusing, suddenly clicked. And the Bible came alive to me as a teacher, as a professor, as a pastor. The Bible came alive to me in a new way and now I'm, I don't know, 12th year of reading it this way. I, I, I honestly don't remember that anymore when I really started. But, but I love now to take my iPad out and take notes on my iPad and read through it. I'm reading through the NLT this year, which is super fun. It's different. I don't always like the way they render something. But, but overall, it's been, it's been a fresh read. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tell you, I love, I have, I've been reading through the NLT as well. It, it, boy, that translation really shines when you get into the divided kingdom era. Um, man, there were so many things this year uh, with that fresh read, uh, because I, I really like the New King James uh, translation, is, which I know you do as well. Um, but, but man, when I got to the divided kingdom era, that, that translation just made all the difference in the world for me. Uh, but I am not as educated as you. You talked about PhDs, and a bunch of people have them, and it doesn't really matter. Well, you, you have a PhD, and I want everybody that's listening or if you're watching uh, on YouTube or Facebook, um, you, you might, might have caught it, you might not have, um, uh, but, but there was a word, and, and Doc does this all the time. He uses words you have to have a dictionary to speak to him. But uh, I believe you, you're talking about the, the route you and Iva took to courtship and marriage, and you, you use the word circuitous. Mm -hmm. uh, so circuitous, I, I, I didn't know what that meant when, when you said it. I figure a lot of people, uh, maybe I'm the only one that doesn't know what that means. But, uh, you know, welcome to life with Doc. 
Um, whenever you're around him, just keep your dictionary handy. Uh, when he says words, just keep those in mind. You'll learn something. All that means is I didn't pronounce it correctly. If it's circuitous. Ah, ah circuitous. Correct. Okay. Well, you know. So, that, that, uh, on a circuit. I so. daily uh, expose my ignorance. And, and somehow when <laughs> I'm around you, I no, no, no. Look, no, it just shows that I need to work on pronunciation guides. I need to pronounce my R's. Just, just my way of, 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 of saying you're one of the most intelligent people I know. But we know that God, as we read through the story, we know he doesn't always use the most intelligent uh, and and he, he uses people from all kinds of backgrounds uh, with, with all kinds of, of stories, and he grafts them into his goodwill and, and pleasure. Um, I, I wanted you to, to, to do two things, um, uh, because as, as, we, as we go through and, and we talk about uh, other issues, it really is important to me for others to know, um, and, and, and I don't know how to say this other than to say it. If it comes out wrong, then okay. But it's important for me that others know how accomplished you are, how studied you are. You are a, 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 an accomplished scholar. And, uh, and so uh, when, when we talk to you about anything, uh, we're, we're not just talking to someone who has been saved for a few years or been doing Bible studies for a few years or even just pastoring a church for a few years. Um, you're, you're somewhat of an authority on many issues, and that's not to blow you up or, or give you the big head or to say something that, that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, overblown. Um, it is important, though, as we unpack some of these issues. Um, I wanted to know, though, beyond all of that, you know, you talk about Iva and 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 her discipleship habit, and you in the beginning, you know, jokingly, you you funded that. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of men, uh, you know, specifically young men, um, not only young men, old men as well, but. But they want, they have a desire to cultivate the kind of culture in their home where they are true partners in the gospel uh, with their spouses, and they struggle. Um, can you identify anything in, in your journey, in your faith journey, where, um, where you intentionally cultivated that, that culture in your home and marriage? Well, from the start, uh, Iva was a committed Christ follower. For her, Jesus' lordship had captivated her. She had come to Christ at the age of 16. She was passionate about that journey. Uh, so it wasn't hard for me to say to her, let's, let's do things. What We did have struggles. You know, just so that everybody knows, uh, neither one of us are perfect people, and, and we, don't, we don't even want to give that idea across. Uh, Iva had grown up, and, and I, I don't think she would mind me telling this, she had grown up in a home where her father was not, uh, it was not a healthy dynamic. So there would be times when they would sit and uh, the father would sit and preach at his children for period, long periods of time. I don't want to go into any more of that. But So for her, having a family time together felt very uncomfortable. So we would read the scriptures together, and we followed a pattern. We really we learned a lot from James Dobson and some good things he taught about family dynamics. And we would read as with our children, 
And we would remember that if you're, the youngest child is one year old, you have a one year attention, one minute attention span rule. So the youngest child's age determines the attention span you have in the room and the number of minutes you're going to give to the time together. But we both committed to daily reading God's Word. Amen. And Jennifer said to us one time, she said, I don't ever remember a time when I came down the stairs and y'all weren't reading your Bibles. Amen. Now, that's, the, that's really the culture we wanted to inculcate in our home. Both of us um, were passionate about reading God's Word. Both of us um, grew in our prayer life, our faith life. One of the things that we did that was so helpful, and I could urge every, every, um, every couple to do this if you can, but one of the things that transformed our marriage and strengthened it greatly was we began to walk in Zimbabwe. You know, Amos says, can two walk together unless they're agreed? It's one of my favorite verses for marriage, uh, for counseling people, with people challenging them in their walk with God. God doesn't have to change. You have to agree with God. Amen. But a married couple has to learn to walk in agreement with God and one another. We began to walk three, four, five, six miles every day. And we would go out, walk, and we would talk about all the problems that we had, people that were bothering us, issues, and we would shred those people. But then on the way back, we'd pray for them. Amen. And we developed a robust prayer life together that carried our marriage and strengthened it greatly. And this is why we were in Zimbabwe. And it carried over for many years until she had a horrible, uh, she broke her foot and then uh, somebody dropped something on her foot. And then she had to run because a lady actually died in one of the Bible studies that uh, that lady had a heart attack. Good gracious. Um, oh, it was not. It was, And she had to run, find uh, help. And on a broken foot, she ran. And so wow. she, she won't tell you any of those stories, but those are stories that wow. have impacted us and really changed. It's hard for her to go walking now. It's harder. It's a lot harder for her to stand up for long periods of time. She doesn't say anything about it and she'll teach, but she does have pain in that foot. Wow. So that changed a little bit what we did. But we've learned through the years that praying together has been one of the greatest tools, learning to. And she taught me something phenomenal. She taught me how to do conversational prayers. So as we walked, we would pray about something for a moment. And I would pray for a moment, and then she would pray about the same issue. And then I would pray about it again, and then she would pray about it again. And we would sense the Spirit saying, okay, you're done with that one. Now move to this one. And it was very... It was, I don't mean to imply we had some special inspiration, but I mean, as you're walking, as you're learning to walk with the Lord and listen to, listen to His voice through His Word, one of the things that becomes clear is you can trust the Spirit's leading, and we would know we were praying about this issue, that's what needed to be prayed about, and we would move on. And we prayed for our children that way, we prayed for people in the ministry that way, we prayed for family members that way, and we began to see God answer some pretty significant prayers and began to shape us and move us in a right trajectory toward what God wanted us to do with our lives. So it was a pretty exciting time. Amen. Amen. And of course, you know, Paul says to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit always. Um, so I, I, love, I love that part of your story. I'm glad we dove into that. So give us an example of that language that you learned in the belly 
okay. uh, in in Zimbabwe. Okay, so the language is called Asindabeli. It's it's uh, a breakaway group from the uh, it's the Ndebele, but it's the is the language, the title for the language. They're a breakaway group from the Zulu people. They uh, Mzilikazi was the king of the Amandabeli because he fled north from Shaka, didn't want to pay tribute. Shaka, the great king of the Zulu. Uh, and Mzilikazi fled north and eventually founded the kingdom of the Amandabeli people. The word means the long shields. And so Amandabeli are the people group. The Isindabeli is the language. And the language is one of the fun languages of the world. Not easy, but fun. Uh, the word, for example, for skunk is spelled I-Q-A-Q-A. It was reduced to English characters by or Roman letters by missionaries. And the word for skunk is Erkaka. Uh, and that uh, click is one of three in our language. Uh, I think it's because they, in, as the Zulu and the and the Ndebele interacted with the, the San people, the Bush people, they have like seven clicks in their language, but they words that were loaned. So the word, so the practice phrase, which I never got to work into a sermon, was uh, the skunk goes jumping on the little hills. Uh, it's and that's a real language. It's a real. It's it's the way we they speak, and they the word for frog, for example, is ikoko, and it's a different click, and it's the sound you make when you call a horse. So you say, and that sound. Uh, then the word for like earrings is amakiti, and it's a very soft little sound. Um, and we sing in it, we pray in it. All of you have actually heard it. Zulu, the the Zulu version of. Uh, 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 one of the most famous songs in the Western world is Nansinguenya. Uh, oh, wow. That means here's a crocodile. Wow. So, so, oh, really? Yeah, that's what it means. Nobody knows that. So it's like when you tell them, they're all disappointed. Ababa Giti means it's one, he's one with us. And uh, when, we, when they, they sing, that means uh, we're overcoming, we're conquering. Wow. So it's a, it's a really neat language. It was fun to learn. It was fun to work in. It was hard. No, just because it's fun doesn't mean it wasn't hard. It was a challenge, but I'm grateful. God put a burden in my heart that everybody ought to hear the gospel in their heart language. And so my passion was is that I wouldn't have to use a translator, that when I was out in the bush, in the, which is the, uh, like the rural areas, when I was out in the bush, I didn't want to have to be dependent upon a translator. And so I preached my own languages, my own sermons. I, um, I sat in the, around the fire and talked to the people. I, I learned the language because I was convicted that everybody ought to get to hear about Jesus in their own heart language. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, let, let's shift gears just a little bit. And you are the president of the CBT board. So tell us how you got involved with CBT. I mean, I, I would imagine it helps being married to the founder, but how did you get involved with CBT and, and why is this ministry exciting to you? When, when Iva was discipling these girls, the, well, they weren't girls, but they were wives, seminary wives, but they were younger than I. So when she was discipling them, I began to watch women fall in love with the Word. Not just fall in love with the Bible study, fill in the blanks, but start reading the Word, taking it seriously. I watch women get off of psychotropic drugs, who women who had all their lives um, worried, lived in worry, lived in fear, 
But as they read God's word and got to know God's story and began to see their place in God's story, it began to transform them. I began to see women who were timid and fearful suddenly step up to the plate and say, hey, I can teach others this story. And all over, women, the ministry began to explode. It, it started off as a little thing. And then the next thing you knew, there were more women studying it, people asking questions. Churches began to look at it. They wanted to know about it. Um, big churches bought thousands of Bibles, got the Sunday school literature, and began to study how CBT had to study this, the chronological approach to Scripture. And as they studied it, it just mushroomed. People began to see this was a valuable resource. And we were, in a way, caught off guard. We were a mom-and-pop thing, literally. Uh, so we decided we needed a board. Uh, people said, we, hey, we want to donate to this. Well, we had no organization to which they could donate. We had to find out, how do you form a 501c3? How do you, uh, how do you move forward? And uh, as I said, I began to re research a lot of this. I was busy pastoring, busy teaching. But we began to get more involved in it together, began to pray about it, began to talk about where it might go, and began to pray about people that were, that were critical to the movement. And there were people, uh, Christy, as you know, Christy was one of the first. She, fun story. We're in uh, Natchez, Mississippi, looking at uh, antebellum homes. And we walked back to one of the, the slaves' quarters, the ancient slaves' quarters. And the room was huge, and it was just shaped on an African style. And I said, I bet the Africans living here probably thought they lived in luxury compared to what they had back in Africa. And the other lady that was, there was another lady and her husband standing there, and she said, why would you say that? And I said, well, we used to live in Africa. I've been in <laughs> smaller homes than this in Africa. And she said, well, tell us about living in Africa. And we began to talk. And Iva shared with her the vision of the ministry. And this lady got super excited and said, by the way, we're from West Arkansas, but my daughter lives in Memphis. Wow. And that was Christy. Wow. And God hooked their hearts together. And we met with Christy. She got excited. She started teaching it to women. And cycle after cycle of women went through the study, and really, it really grew. And we began to realize this ministry uh, was a, was a worthy ministry that it that it that it was going to train many people to know God's story. It was going to get them out of doing a church thing and into knowing God and Amen. knowing His story. Amen. So, and and who the Christie that he's talking about is Christie Macris. Um, she will be interviewed. Uh, really in probably just a few weeks. So we'll get to, to really dig into to her discipleship journey. She's another serial disciple maker. Um, and, and, and it's a, a joy to get to work together. Um, as, as you've been involved, uh, and I know, I know that, that your involvement with CBT is, it, it's really a a small part of your journey. I mean, you're you're a professor. You're you, you train students, missionaries, pastors. Continually have been for years, um, but at, at some point, you you really you really sunk your teeth into the 14-hour framework, and and so as as you have ministered and taught and trained. What have you seen over the years 
in identifying a Bible illiteracy problem that caused you to really embrace this 14-era framework system uh, for knowing the story as a Bible? Does that question make yes, sense? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I would say this. I think that this framework is so critical, this chronological understanding of Scripture is so critical, that if I could go back and redo my missionary ministry, I would build it on this. This would be the core. Because understanding the story at this level transforms everything else you do. Suddenly, you're not dealing with disparate puzzle pieces, you know, that are just, you know, here's here's David and here's, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. What a cool story. But how does it relate to the big story? Now, now Daniel makes so much more sense. Daniel's taken in 605. Nebuchadnezzar takes him and takes all the gold. And you think, what's going on, God? And God says, well, he's going to hold it till Cyrus sends it back. And it's like simply storage in the, you know, in the, in the seventh century. And so, and so. <laughs> keeping you know, it all right. intact and that's in right. one that's place. That's right. Just keeping it all right. safe for when God says, take it back. Right. Um, but you begin to follow Daniel's big story and you realize how much Daniel fits into God's story and what's going on in, and how David fits into God's big story, how he's, why, why it's so critical that in the days of the judges, there's a girl named Ruth, Amen. you know, and, and, and things fall into place. One of my favorite insights, for example, is realizing as we study Zephaniah, I know it's everybody's favorite book, but uh, as we study Zephaniah, I read Zephaniah and I realize even though most chronologies will place Zephaniah in the latter part of Josiah's reign, Zephaniah is the only prophet who traces his lineage five generations back to his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah, the king, on purpose. And I think he does that for a significant reason, to tell us that he had access to the court of the boy king, and he was able to speak to the ear of the boy king, and the prophet Zephaniah is used by God to... to foment the revival that breaks forth from Josiah's reign. But if I didn't know the chronological story, I would have never caught that because I've read it for years. And, and this is unfortunately what we do with most of our Bible studies. Even good conservative seminaries, and I've talked to other professors and they agree with me, even good conservative seminaries treat the Bible atomistically. In other words, they break it up and they cut it up in little parts. And so you spend time studying the Old Testament, but you study it. You don't study the story. You study this part of the Old Testament and then this part, and you're looking at the poetry and you're looking at the kings and you're looking at, but they're not put together in a woven chronological fashion that makes sense to the reader. And so instead of getting the overall big picture and seeing what God's up to, you end up with a thousand-piece puzzle with no, as, as my wife always says, with no box cover, uh, you know, no no corners and no ends, and and somebody says, here, put this together, and it's like uh, that ain't happening. <laughs> so, so for me, chronological Bible teaching is so integral to everything I've done. As I've read it chronologically, as I've gotten the framework of the fourteen eras, I've only regretted that I didn't know it sooner. And mm. I'm teaching it to my people. Uh, over and over again, it's it's the DNA of our church, and I know we'll talk more about that, but it, it really is. It's become, for me, a total game changer, if you will, in Bible study. I, By the time I came to CBT, I'd read through the Bible 25, 26 times uh, before I started reading the chronological. If I'm, I'm in my 40-something 40, 40 read, so now I've probably been reading it 15 years, I guess. Um, 
And the Bible makes sense today in a way that it didn't in all those other reads. Now, granted, I'm the product of getting to read it all those times. And I every, every year the Lord teaches me new things. Absolutely. And he's a gracious God. And he was good to me before I got it chronologically. But if you can imagine this chronological understanding, if you're a first-time reader, read it chronologically. If you're a tenth-time reader, pick it up and read it chronologically. Chronological reading for me, and I'm just telling you this for myself, was a quantum leap forward. It was not just, oh, here's another advance. It's, oh, here's a new vista of understanding Scripture. Now, to me, that's powerful because Scripture came alive to me in a brand new way. It's so much easier to preach. It's so much more clear. The pictures, everything Paul says now relates to something else that's going on. Paul's not speaking in a vacuum. Jesus' words are not coming out in a vacuum. Jesus is attaching to Isaiah. Jesus And Isaiah is attaching to Genesis. Um, and so they're, they're all working together to tell this one coherent story of what God's up to. And once you get it, you can join in on that incredible story. You know, you, you, you were my missiology professor. Um, and so really most of, of what I learned in the formation of understanding worldview and, and, and missiology uh, really, really came from you. Um, and, and, and I have done a lot of time, you know, spent a lot of time thinking through why this is such an advance when you go from studying the Bible in traditional ways that, that I grew up studying the Bible and being taught to, when you move to a chronological approach. One of the things that I've, I've come up with is, is, that, is that we are, we are Western thinkers. We, we think linearly. Uh, the, the, the Bible was written in, in a culture that thought circularly. Uh, events, time, space, uh, and the, the, the chronology was not so important. One, because they lived that story. It was right. their own. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but two, um, because the, you know, the, the, the chronology of it, the, the storyline uh, story of it, um, really did not have to, it, it, it doesn't have to be assembled in writing for it to make sense. Right. Um, for us, we can't understand anything unless it is assembled into a storyline. We don't, we don't learn any character of any movie by turning to minute one hour and 12. Right. Uh, we, we, we have to start from the beginning and watch that character development. Um, can I re respond to that idea for, as, a, as a missiologist who is an expert on, on worldview and, uh, and, and cross-cultural communication, why is it that the chronological approach is so powerful, not just for our culture? It, 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 why is it so powerful every country we bring this to? Why does it just work? And, that, and that's a really, that's a fun question to think about. Uh, I remember watching an old video called E Tau. And E Tau tells the story of how New Tribes missions took the chronological approach to Scripture to a people group. Most people go on a mission trip or go to the mission field and they think, I need to introduce people to Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. Praise God that you want to. 
But when you introduce people to Jesus who have a worldview that is very different from the biblical worldview, the Jesus you introduce to them is a foreign concept, and it's like a puzzle piece that's on a different puzzle. If you've ever, if your kids ever picked up the puzzles and put them together and you had two puzzles out, more than likely you ended up with puzzles, pieces from two different puzzles in the same box. And you try to put that piece in, it doesn't make any sense, it doesn't fit anywhere, and some clever children will just cram it in, you know, <laughs> bang that thing down till it gets in there and all the pieces that didn't fit just fell off or got cut off. In the same way, that's what happens with Jesus. And so, for example, when the Muslims are introduced to Jesus, Muslims, Jesus is a miracle worker. He's Messiah. He, he is, but he didn't die on a cross, and he's, he didn't rise from the dead, and he's not the Son of God. Hindus say, why, yes, he's an incarnation of Vishnu. He's a wonderful teacher. We love and respect him, but he's not the Son of God, not the deity that saves. He's just a part of the illusion. And Buddhists say, well, Jesus is just another incarnation of the Buddha. And African traditional religionists will then say, well, we like Jesus. He's the great ancestor spirit. And so he's able to intercede for us, and he's the great ancestor spirit, and he can do mighty powerful things. So you should pray to him, but just don't forget your own ancestors. Well, that's the way the world sees Jesus. And in our culture today, that's the way the world sees Jesus, because they get an evolutionary viewpoint taught in school, and evolution says you're just a grown-up germ, and your life makes no sense, there is no purpose, no destiny. But when we begin to study the Bible chronologically, we see that God, from the beginning, has a worldview that he gives to his people. He teaches his people that they are his. Their origin is from God. We were made by God. You were made by God. And therefore, you have a different origin. And God has made you not only as his, but for purpose. We were made to reflect his glory. We were made to relate to him and the world around us properly. We were made to rule with him. But the first part of that rule was going to be self-rule. And yet, sin distorted all of that. Every bit of it is distorted. And so today our worldview is fractured and, and only God's story puts us back into the worldview. And when, when, so when new tribes started, instead of starting at John 3.16, they started at Genesis 3. They started with creation in Genesis 1 and told the story of creation. They told the story of the fall. And as they told the story, and as the story progressed, the Word of God did its office work. It became a seed that was implanted in the hearts of the hearers. The hearers began to understand God's true story, and God's true story blossomed forth. And so they began to look for the one, the innocent, who would come on behalf of the guilty and die for sinners and forgive sins. And when Jesus came and did that, it's transformative because now they have a framework into which they can place this mag majestic person, Jesus, because that's what he, he needs to be fitted in the proper framework. And so this is what Scripture does for us. Understanding the chronological approach gives us a framework to understand who we are but who God is and what God's really up to. Instead of starting at, the, at, at some point, as you said, you mentioned starting a movie at one minute, and 12, uh, one hour and 12 minutes and not making any sense. In the same way, starting the Bible at the New Testament leaves out all that made it important. It's so important that when Paul talked about it, he said, in the fullness of time, hmm. God sent his son.
Mm-hmm. And so the story unpacks who we are and who God is and what God's up to and why that, when we know that story, that's transformative. That's why I tell you, as I said it earlier, if I went back to Zimbabwe and began to train again, I would start with the foundation of the 14 Arrows. I would train them to know the framework of the story. I'd give them the puzzle box, the puzzle pieces. I would give them the, the straight edges, the corners. I would give them the big picture so that then when they understand who Daniel is, they know where he fits in God's story and why he's there. Yeah, and you're really, you're really just uh, talking about how the, the, and why the Bible is differentiated from every other spiritual book. Um, a, 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 the Bible's our scripture that God has, has given us, written over thousands of years, more than 44 authors, is, is one story, and it is, it is through story that people's worldviews are pierced and changed, broken down and built back up. Um, at, at, the, at the core, our problem in sin is that we think wrongly about God. Every person who has ever lived forms a wrong worldview, one that is flawed in its view of God. Um, and so I, I love the way you just unpacked that, this, this story. The reason it works all over the world is because it is through story that our worldviews are broken down and, and, and reformed to a correct view of God. But it, we, we've been talking a little bit about how the story of the Bible, and specifically the 14-era framework, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it, it, it impacts someone who uh, does not know Jesus in any way, who is far from a knowledge of Jesus. Um, but the 14-era the framework also corrects flawed worldviews of Christians. Because as we begin our faith journey, we, we, don't, we don't get a flawless worldview automatically. We understand a few true things uh, about God and about Jesus, but we spend the rest of our lives having that worldview uh, tweaked by God. It, it, in fact, Paul commands us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Amen. I think he's talking about the worldview. So as you, uh, as you train pastors, future pastors, future ministers, as you have trained missionaries uh, using the 14-era framework, as, as you use the 14-era framework and chronological Bible teaching in your place of service in, in, in church, everywhere you're using this in the classroom, on the mission field, in the church, talk about some of the results that you're seeing among those who already know Jesus, who might, like you, have been studying the Bible for many years. What, what are you seeing? What's happening, I'll just give you, I'll, I'll give you three specific, since you asked for three, I'll give you three. One, um, in our church, as we began to read the Bible chronologically, Bible literacy leapt forward first. I mean, Amen. we have a Bible literate congregation. On an average year, half of our congregation reads through the Bible. And the way I know that is I give out free books to those who do, and I give away about half the attendance that Sunday, every Sunday. And then a few people come to me through the week saying, I didn't get to make it last week. May I get a book? I've read through the Bible. And what we've seen is, is people embracing reading God's Word and getting to know God's story. 
And that's brought a unity to the body because when everybody's reading on the same page, uh, it's it brings, uh, they're all together seeing what God's doing. They're all enjoying it together. And then to, co to correspond to that, on Wednesday nights, I preach through somewhere in the reading of that week's reading and summarize where we are in the story. So my people are getting the story. They can tell you the, the first eight eras now because they understand them. They know what's going on in the eight eras, and I don't have to, I can ask questions, and they jump in and give the answers, and they, they get the big picture. And so it brings unity to the body, but it also brings literacy to the body. And a church that's not biblically literate is a church that's ripe for every heresy. Mm -hmm. It's ripe for every, every um, false doctrine that comes in, every wind of false doctrine. It's ripe for every wolf that comes in. Because the people don't know, so they can be led astray by a pastor who comes and wants to get them to do things that aren't necessarily biblical. Mm. And but a biblically literate church can't be. And I, I'll tell you this: I meet people who say, you know, I've met people through the years, and you've met people through the years, and they say, well, I have questions about the Bible. It's like my people have a bunch more than you do, you know, because <laughs> they they read the Bible all the time, and they have tons more questions than you have. In fact. Every Wednesday night, I cringe when I ask this statement. So when we get through the Bible study, I say, anybody have any questions from this week's reading? And at this point, it's almost like I hope I have a shield up there because, <laughs> because they come up with the best questions. Like, what does Ezekiel mean about this? Like, when we get to heaven, we'll all get to ask him that one because I don't know. I mean, and the Hebrew is no more help than the English, so don't get your hopes up. Um, and that's a, that's, But that's fun because... I watch people get fall in love with God's Word, read it carefully, and at the church level, it brings a unity. Sunday schools are, are filled with discussion about what's going on in the story. They follow the story. People begin to use examples from Scripture when they're talking about issues. And that's what you want. Amen. You want a church that's Amen. biblically literate. In, this, in the classroom, now at the different levels, like for example, I've taught, I had the privilege of teaching for a college and uh, university in town that had a Bible a program for people coming back as adult learners. Mm -hmm. And I got to teach their Old Testament. And I had so much fun using the chronological method. I watched people who had maybe gone to church or maybe weren't going to church, but they, and some of them were Christians, believers, but they never knew the story. And as we learned the 14 errors together, the errors of the Old Testament, as they learned them, they said, why has no one ever taught me this before? The Bible makes so much more sense. Mm. And I agree with them. That's why yeah. I did this. And they would learn that and they would get the story down and people would come back with excitement and say, I took this booklet to my pastor and I said to him, we have a little booklet about the 14 eras that's written. It's a simple guide to understanding the 14 eras. And, and I would use it in my classes and I wouldn't make it a requirement, but everybody wanted a copy and they would learn the 14 eras and they would take it to their churches and say, this is such a great book. I'm so glad I learned this. And so I watched it take place just in believers. But then with pastors, as I've watched pastors and I've trained young men who are going into the ministry and women who are going to the mission field, when they get the story down, they say, why wasn't I taught this before? Mm -hmm. This yeah. helps me make sense of what God's doing in Scripture. And then they, it's so much easier for them to teach the big framework once they know it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you, you, you can't teach what you don't know. That's right. You can't learn what you don't pursue. You, 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 can't, you can't pass on what you haven't achieved. That's right. Uh, well, you know, in, in bringing up what, what, what you're seeing, it, it, 
because I know you personally um, and somewhat intimately, I know the way, I know the kind of pastor that you are. I know that you pray for the members of your church by name on a daily basis. Um, I, I know uh, that, that, that you, I know the way that you give the leaders in your church freedom to walk out their faith journey and you pray for them continually. And I know uh, how you handle conflict. And, and when I hear you talking about, you know, look, the simple commitment to teach the Bible this way, using the 14 era framework and, and the, the simple fact that our folks are reading through the chronological Bible, half the church every year, it is, it is transformative. There might be a minister or a pastor that stumbles upon this. What what would you tell a pastor who catches the vision of what could happen in his church and wants to implement this kind of discipleship system in his church? What would you tell that pastor? How would they get started? Unpack that a little bit. Well, <coughs> excuse me. One of the things I'd tell them to do is call me. I mean, I'm really accessible. I'm not of like, all the things you, of all the things I thought you'd say, that that's not what I thought you'd say. Well, let me tell you why I say that, and you can take. You know, we can. You, this is the nice thing about videoing. No, no, I love it. I love you know, it. I, I want a hundred thousand people to call Doctor Stan May this next week. If a hundred thousand people watch this podcast and all of you call me, my heart will be so happy. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know. I might not take all your calls, but my call, my heart will be happy. But here's what I mean by that. I would tell a pastor. There's, I would tell a pastor to go to our website. We've we've created a simple step-by-step plan to say implement a one-year chronological Bible reading plan, coupled with the Sunday school material that goes along with it. Not because we're interested in selling you some books, because what happens is you buy our books one time, and your teachers teach through them five or six years in a row, and you spend a lot less money on literature, but you get your people get a lot more. Uh, knowledgeable of scripture and they get to know it better and so it's not it's not to sell us anything because we don't we don't try to make money off the books we just use them for the glory of god we want people to be equipped but what i would because because here there's a plan there's a real plan like you would order chronological one-year bibles you would have them available for your church you would make bible reading a priority you would promote it from the pulpit People do what you promote, not what you hope they'll do. As, a, as a, one of my fellow staff members told me a long time ago as a military guy, I said, I hope something. He said, Doc, hope is not a course of action. What you hope is not what they'll do. What you promote, what you push, and what you inspect is what they do. And so what I do is I challenge them to read through the Bible. I remind them through the year that we're reading through the Bible. I give away free books at the end of the year to those who read the Bible. I challenge them to take up for the next year. I make Bible reading a priority. I had a lady tell me, it's in, 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 her, in her late 60s, I've been her pastor now 21 years, she said, no one ever challenged me to read through the Bible until you, and now I've read through it for over 20 years. Amen. Well, that's what ought to happen. But you as pastors have to step up to the plate and do that. Then you could simply say, I want to learn how to learn the chronological story. And it's it's not that hard. It's really not. It's a, You already know the bits and pieces of it. You just need to look at the framework. 
and we have resources. We have free resources all through the website that teach you how. We have resources on our website that if your people begin to read, they can be introduced to the week's reading, they can answer hard questions in the week's reading, and they can be and the week's reading will be summarized for them on a weekly basis and videos. We have materials that are out there to help churches become biblically literate. Our passion, and that's why it's free. We're not trying to we want churches to be biblically literate. We hunger and thirst. If every church in America awakened to this, the not just the talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, oh, well, but the fact that every, every believer is on the same page reading God's Word, literally on the same page reading God's yeah. Word every day, and discussing together what they're reading, interacting with one another, and finding and falling in love with God's story, understanding it and, and telling that story after they've discovered it and then watch them grow. That's, that's transformative. That's what I love. I love to see people take off and learn the story. Uh, we poured in, Joel and I had the privilege of pouring into a group of men a few years back and, and one of the men was, uh, was one of my heroes. He was a pilot and he said, I don't even know how I got the email. I said, I, he said, I never really attended the same church twice growing up. We didn't go to church, and I wouldn't be what you call a church person. But, and he started coming, and he got intrigued. And uh, we, I mean, he fell in love with the story, and it's transformed his life. And now he's teaching the story at our church. He's, and in three years, he's gone from being somebody who wanted to learn the story, didn't know anything about the Bible at all, period, to now training others in knowing God's story. And so I'm convinced that if pastors focused on this, if they said we're going to make Bible study, Bible literacy priority one, if we could make Bible literacy, not just study a book, not just look at Amos, but get to know God's story, if we could make that priority one, that would change the trajectory of our church. Because I'll tell you this, we've still had problems in the church and we've had issues through COVID. We've had the same struggles every other church has had, but ours have been on Bible questions. It's been very fun to watch because even the people who, with whom I disagreed, I respected that they were digging into scripture and trying to find the right answers Amen. from scripture. Amen. So. Amen. Well, you know, I think uh, I think that leads us into a uh, maybe a question you might not want me to ask, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway. Uh, you have authored several resources that CBT has available, uh, and and not you've certainly authored resources that are free, but you've also authored more substantial resources that can be purchased on our website chronologicalbibleteaching.com. I wonder if you would walk through those resources that you have authored and just briefly tell us what the intent was and and why those specific resources were created and what they're trying to accomplish. Well, so I told you I was supporting Iva's discipleship habit. CBT began to grow past the point where it was people first perceived it because the first book was Women, Worldview, and the Word. So they perceived it as a woman's study. 
But men began to see how their wives' lives were changing, and so they asked for it. Well, a friend whose family was deeply involved in CBT took the women's and sort of began to convert it. Well, we then worked together to make it into a full-blown, I took it and reworked it, and then I reworked it twice uh, into a full-blown M3, men mindset and, and the message. So the same idea of the three words, because a worldview is, a, is like a mindset. Um, and so we, we took it to train men in the chronological story, to learn, and, and every, every piece of the puzzle is different. Um, the M3 is based on a chronological approach to understanding the story, but it's not a, a strict linear chronology like week one you look at creation and week two you look at this, and, and by the end of the 52 weeks you're in Revelation. The first 17 or 18 lessons are out of Genesis because God does so much worldview formation in Genesis and so much unpacking of his spiritual formation process through the life of Abraham and others that he teaches us lessons we don't want to miss in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And so the CBT approach is a far more Socratic approach, meaning that we use questions. We don't it's not fill in the blanks, it's not answers, it's open-ended. Okay, And it's not, how do you feel about this? We don't care how you feel about it. The Bible doesn't care how you feel about it. So <laughs> just so you know, let me make that clear. But the questions are like this. So we ask factual questions. Okay, let's read the story. What happened now? What do you see happen? And it's really funny. We read Genesis 3, for example, and you say, so where's Adam in this? And everybody says, well, he's not there. And I said, but well, look what the text says. The text says, who was with her? And it's like, light bulb, everybody goes, oh, he was there. And so then you have to unpack what's going on. And you ask factual questions. Then you ask um, application questions, okay? So what does this mean for us today? What does it mean as Adam and Eve have gone through this? You ask, um, so you get the story straight. Then you ask inferential questions. What does this teach us about God? For example, when God shows up in Genesis 3, he says, where are you? Now, think about that. What does this tell you about God? God doesn't come giving answers. He asks questions. Is God asking questions because he doesn't know the answers? No, we're talking about the sovereign of the universe here. So he's got a bigger point in asking questions. And in fact, the Bible is a book of God asking men questions. When he confronts Job, he asked about 70 or 80 questions. Jesus asked almost 250 questions in the four canonical gospels. Do you realize what that means? Jesus spent more time asking questions or as much time asking questions as he did instructing. Why? Because this is God's approach. God's MO is to force us to, to reflect. And so you learn inferential questions. What does this teach us about God, about man, about sin, about grace? You ask connecting questions. Now in Genesis 3, there's not much to connect to. But by the time you get to the life of David, there's a trail of connections that flow backwards. And then finally, we do ask application questions. We don't say, what does it mean for you now? But we say, what does this story, what are, what are our takeaways from this story? How does this story impact my life today? And it's not just be a good moral person. It's what is God doing in this story? That God, who is the God of David, who is the God of Daniel, who is the God of Moses, who is the God of Abraham, is God for me. What does that look like for me today? And so it's so much fun to learn how to use that resource. That resource helps men unpack God's story 
and learn to see the story as it really is. Second resource I wrote was, um, and, and we all admit this, we love the chronological one-year Bible. The only problem is you hit the New Testament at a gallop. And <laughs> September 25th, you hit the New Testament, and December 31, you finish it. And so Sunday school material in the New Testament is like a book at a time, but not a little book. Like you're doing all of Romans and part of 1 Corinthians because you do 21, roughly 21 chapters a week or 22. So I determined that what would be a good corollary to our one-year chronological Sunday school material would be a New Testament. So I created a daily devotional, a five-day-a-week, one-chapter-a-day devotional through the New Testament in a very Socratic approach, answering lots of questions about the chapters you read it, and a companion piece that would be 52 weeks of either Sunday school or small group discipleship through the New Testament. And it's geared toward everybody. Uh, men can use it, women can use it, youth can use it. It's, each lesson is about three pages long. It's written in, an, to me, what is it, a teachable outline form. I'm a teacher, so I ask, how could anybody pick this up and use it? And uh, not to say anything, but not, not, I'm not trying to say anything good or bad here, but one of, uh, my, one of our people said that they went to a Sunday school class of a lady who's not known to be the greatest teacher ever. And yet she took the material in the New Testament and she said for her it's easy to teach. Amen. She's able to teach it and she Amen. uses it. And so these two resources became, uh, for me, it was a year of hard challenge to write that, to keep up with our people. But our people fell in love with the New Testament in a fresh way and began to learn how it is in God's chronology, how it ties to the Old Testament in a deeper way. And so that material is available. And then I wrote a simple little book on doubt because I run into so many people who struggle with doubt and they wonder if it's okay. Can a Christian doubt? Because they've heard some theologian say or some preacher say, if you're 99% sure you're saved, you're 100% lost. And What does the Bible say? And the Bible doesn't teach any such thing just to banish that thought from your mind, but it sure gets people to make decisions and makes preachers look successful. But So we answered the question about what does the Bible teach about assurance? So those are the books that I've written. I've helped Iva, I've edited others with her. Um, when she would go out of the country, like when she was writing her daily blog, I wrote a lot of them. I didn't tell anybody, but she was in another part of the world and couldn't do it, so I wrote some days. And so. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun watching uh, the the two of you as a uh, as as a as a couple uh, really complement each other in everything that you do and and everything that you teach and these resources that 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 have been developed all center around the same discipleship process uh, all all using the fourteen era framework with the goal of helping people discover the story of the Bible, understand it, and then tell it to others. One thing I love about CBT, and it's true about the resources that you have written, you haven't written resources that cause people to get through that particular study and then wait for you to write the next thing. The design is that they buy one resource from you, they lead others through it, and then that produces 
others who will then go start groups and lead others through that resource. The whole, the whole point here is to wean people off of celebrity written Bible studies, get them into the text, give them a correct hermeneutic, teach them how to ask the right questions of the text, then they can spend the rest of their lives teaching the Bible. And Which is our goal. What happened in my church, one thing that was fun in our church is our Sunday school teachers said, okay, well, uh, Iva introduced to them the, story, the idea of threading through, this, through the story. And so year two came and they said, what do we teach? And I said, well, go back through it this year. Year three came and they said, we're going to write our own threads. And for four or five years, they chose, okay, we're going to look at the thread of mercy in the New Testament. We're going to look at the, I mean, the, in the chronological story. We're going to look at the thread of works in the chronological story. And we're going to look at the thread of grace in the chronological story. And so they began to pull threads and they created literature out of, just out of the reading because there it is. It's the text. It's not, they don't need me. They're able to take God's word and teach it. And now these people know God's word. They're, they're grounded in it. And, and that's why I say they ask better questions. They are better church members because for them, the Bible has moved from being an abstract authority to which they gave lip service to a guide for life that they see their story meshing with it and fitting into it. So it's changed them. Amen. Well, I I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I've even learned some things that I haven't learned in, I don't know, the 12 years that we've known each other, or the 11 years. Uh, So so this has been, been very good for me. And we do this, we did this with Iva, and you could say that we do this with every interview uh, where someone is is here and really that we consider an expert that we want to learn from. And, and so, Doc, we want you to just, we want to push play on the Doc uh, truth player and we want you to just drop a truth bomb on us. We just, just want to, we just want you to talk about something for a few minutes that that God has shown you, either recently or throughout uh, your your faith journey. But here we go. You're about to hear a truth bomb from Dr. Stan May. It is guaranteed. It is guaranteed to make you stop what you're doing, perk up your ears, and 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 challenge your thinking. Play. Perhaps. The most significant thing that the Lord's taught me in the last few years is, is, as I've read through a story, is the realization of the importance of the day. And when I say the day, I mean the big day. Paul, Paul was captivated by the day. He talks about it in Romans. He said, every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive for the things done in the body, whether according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This verse has captivated me. It has made me aware that everything is going to be evaluated in the light of that day. And so what I want to do is I want to try to live every day in the light of that day. I want to let that day govern my uh, my my work, my habits, my activities. I don't want to be ashamed on the big day. I don't want to stand there on the big day and realize I spent my money on lesser things when I could have given 
to reach a lost world for Jesus. I don't want to stand there on that day and realize I could have, I wasted my time doing things instead of being in God's Word and letting it transform me. I don't want to find out that on the big day, at the big dance, when we stand before God and on the big show and tell, I don't want to have nothing to show. I don't want to be ashamed on the big day. And that weighs on my heart. I want you to think about that. God's letting resources pass through your hands. Think of how much money you'll earn in your life. And what are you going to do on the big day? What will you have given for what really matters? How many things will the Lord parade back before you that you bought that you'll think, I'm so ashamed. I could have given my money for what really matters. What about your time? Because you see, I meet people who say, well, Pastor, I'm just too busy to read the Bible. Do you realize 15 minutes is one ninety-sixth of your day? That's like 1%. Now, I know you spend some of that time sleeping, but 1%, you can't give 1% to the king. How do you think that's going to play out on the big day? Let me just ask you that. Because that, that thought reverberates through my mind. If I can't give 15 minutes to reading God's word, what am I saying about my priorities for the big day? And so I live with that day in mind. I live with it when I think about the choices I want to make. What are the things that I need to choose? Now, I don't always do everything right. Please don't hear that somehow or another I've come to some magical success where I know what I'm, that I'm always doing what is right. But please hear me on this. If I could tell you to live, do any one thing, I would say one of Paul's major motivations was to live for the day so that he wouldn't be ashamed. In Philippians chapter 1, he, he says this. Everybody knows Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But the verse that precedes that, I believe, is Paul's life verse. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my mortal body, whether by life or by death. Paul said, I want to be unashamed. I want to be unafraid. I want to stand before God on that day unashamed. So I just want to challenge you. As you're a pastor, I want to say to you, don't do things that don't matter. Get your people into God's Word. Get them into the things that are truly important. Get your people to be biblically literate. Get them to know God's Word. If you're a lay person, take this as a personal challenge. Say, today I'm going to commit to starting today to read God's Word. I'm going to invest my money in that which really matters. I'm going to make my life count because I don't want to be ashamed on the only day that matters. Thanks. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you for taking the time and letting us do this. Thank you for the investment that you have made in so many, but especially my own life and the life of my family. Um, and and we, will, we will pray that everything that was said today will make a difference in someone's life. Amen. Thank you, Joel. Well, we, you noticed that Jake wasn't here today, and obviously uh, we have two microphones, so we are without Jake, but he'll be here next episode. I'm going to interview him. For now, though, this has been another episode of CBT Talks. Have a great week.